When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. And he's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's the history of hands. Which is all about medieval kingship childhood and you've guessed it it is about gloves sam and jazz jazz hands jazz hands if you like what you hear please leave us a review on itunes subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends all of them we're on twitter follow me at dr sam willis and you can follow me at james daybell and you can follow histories of the unexpected on at unexpected pod we are proud to be part of the excellent history hit network home of dan snow's history hit and other great shows and you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months show notes video clips photos of everything we discuss and much much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 34 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the histories of things you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like dust, shadows or mud. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history and, crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of needlework is in fact all about Nazis and political coups. Mm. And in fact, that the history of time is all about the Industrial Revolution and 12th century monasteries. Mm, That's a good one there. The man sitting opposite me is the dentist of dates. It's Professor James Daybell. And the man sitting opposite me is the archivist of antiquity. It is the wonderful Dr Sam Willis. Together we'll be piloting you on this uncharted, very dangerous flight into the past. Each week one of us takes the lead and this week it's my turn. Are you ready? What have you got for us? We're doing the history of hands. The history of hands. As somebody who is obsessed at the moment with gloves, hands are right up my street. And I promise I will only talk a little bit. So what do you think about the unexpected history of hands? um, um, Jazz hands. Jazz hands. Um, I'm thinking about gesture. I think about pointing. We're both sitting here with our arms crossed, which is rather weird for us, actually. Do you ever talk like that when you're lecturing? 
Sometimes. Depends whether I'm nervous. This is obviously a sign of deep insecurity. It is. But you're, you're talking about hands a, a gesture. I gesticulate all the time. Have so you ever tried hands talking very important. while sitting on your hands? I will try it now. It'll, it's right. probably, it will probably be terrible for me. I think it will be terrible for me. It will be terrible for me. He looks very, very awkward. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. I actually think hands are really important for historians. There's been so much work done. I know what you're going to say, but I mean for actually, actually <laughs> as a historian. Getting your hands dirty in the archives. Yes, obviously getting your hands dirty yep. in the archives. Um, so your hands as a tool for picking up uh, opening yep. boxes and things like that. But actually being able to discuss the ideas you want to discuss and to use your use your hands, as you said, when you're lecturing, to actually make the point. So you can be very specific about certain things, you can be more open with things, and I think you can really get a much better sense of exactly how you think about a subject if you use your hands properly in public speaking. Absolutely, and it's something I do... Well, you can see me now. I am, yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate that we don't have a video uh, for you to be able to see that. He's making um, a kind of small melon small, gesture. Small <laughs> melon gesture. But it is a subject that has occupied a lot of attention among the, the scholarly community. You know, in many, many ways, studies on... It comes out of studies on the body, studies of clothing, studies of gesture, studies of touch. A brilliant book that we've been reading by Farah Karim Cooper, The Hand on the Shakespearean Stage. Mm. Uh, a wonderful book that I've been reading recently uh, on the finger, the finger a handbook by the art historian Angus Trumbull. That's uh, wonderful. Which is absolutely fascinating. And I suppose that's not just pointing, it's... Um, see, this is good for podcasts. Drumming, yeah. Yeah, clicking... Yeah. So it's digits, yeah. digits. Uh, I've also been reading the anthropology and social significance of the human hand, which is a sort of compendium of an article that sort of explores the whole range and meaning of hands across time. So we can think about hands as a form of communication, gesture, as we were talking about earlier on. We can think about how you actually read hands. So you look at an individual's hands and hands are a social or cultural marker. They're a marker of race, you know, the colour of hands. They're a marker of class, workers' hands. Yeah. They're also a marker of criminality. In the early modern period, to be marked, to be burnt on the hand, yeah. or to have your hand chopped off, was a way of signifying a criminal. I suppose there's a very obvious link to criminality with fingerprints as well. Yeah, isn't yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I, I wonder when that... Oh, I actually don't know. When did someone first realise that fingerprints were unique? We should Google that now. OK, let's um, find out. I, I actually don't know. I'm going to guess it was a Chinese. While, he, while he's Googling, you also think about the cultural meaning of hands, the left and the, and the right hand. The left hand is associated with evil, the right hand associated with good, you know, God and the devil, uh, the right hand of the father. The hand is a sensory organ, so the idea of touch, you know, the history of surfaces, of friction, of vibration, percussion. You think of early painting, the hand is associated with early painting, cave paintings, mm. the hand and language... I think is interesting, the hand for counting, the hand for measuring. You know, the hand is a, was a way of measuring horses. Hands and the occult and symbolism. So we look at palm reading, hand and handshake. Wow. You think about hand and the political handshake. You know, there's been some interesting work done recently on Donald Trump's handshake. Right. Have you seen Donald Trump's handshake? You should, I'll pretend to be Donald Trump. Yeah, you're doing uh, well. Donald, And Donald Whoa. Trump pulls you... Well, he, he nearly pulled, pulled me off my he seat. He pulls you in. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, the handshake for him, a very sort of macho kind of way of showing... God, that would his, annoy his me. power. It would, and I'm sure it annoys a lot of people. Didn't he shake Angela Merkel's hand like that? Ah, uh, he refused oh, to you shake. Read that's what it was. He yeah, refused to shake. Ah. It said the politics of not shaking hands when you're looking at political leaders. I'm going to talk a little bit about politicians' hands later well, on. I'm going to start off, because the first thing I, Go for uh, it. that made me think about this was a book I'm reading 
it's a description of a gesture. I just really, really liked it because I've had laser eye surgery recently. I don't wear glasses anymore. But this L- is this is duck. about someone who's deliberately using his glasses to make a gesture. Right. He removed his glasses and slowly rubbed his eyelids. It was a gesture he had always enjoyed. Having been blessed as a child with excellent eyesight, he had sometimes been impatient for the day when he too would do it. In fact, there were two distinct versions of the gesture. This is a bit I love. In the first, the glasses were removed with a sweeping gesture of the right hand, the head turning slightly to the right as though to add a finishing touch. The second, a more refined version of the first, was accompanied by an enigmatic smile and, when perfectly executed, the glasses were removed with understated awkwardness by the left hand so that the right could be held out to the visitor for whom the gesture had been made, like an artistic performance intended as a greeting. It's amazing. Amazing. Just how complicated it can be. And so that's someone who's actually just thought about their gestures. And it really made me think about how often... I've just used one there. I've used... What is that? That's a cover... I don't know, it's a flat right hand gesture. It's not a cutting one, it's an open one. How often I use my hands and I use gesture. And I liked it that he had two versions of the same yeah, gesture. Yeah. It's clearly a subject which becomes massively complicated the more you think about it. So one of the things I think about being a historian is imagining people in the past. Okay, So if you imagine a load of people in a meeting or sitting around a dining table, Mm. Lots of people, will be, there'll be historians studying what they wear, historians studying what they're eating, historians studying what's on the walls, uh, what clothes they're wearing. But for me, none of this really makes sense. We, we might also know what they said. It might have been recorded in a diary. But the moment you start thinking about hands, you realise how inadequate that yeah. understanding is, yeah. unless you actually understand how someone has said something, how they are eating. And there is this kind of an aching vastness of history which completely bypasses us but you become aware of it if you actually study yourself and i think hands is such a wonderful example of linking your own behavior patterns to your own inadequate understanding of the past yeah you can think about you know the kinds of gestures that we use today either to offend or to congratulate or to you know to welcome people this is a topic that historians certainly all historians have looked at in recent years there's a brilliant recent special edition of the journal past and present Mm -hmm. devoted to to gesture so yeah and the meaning of how gestures like that have changed over time I think is 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 absolutely extraordinary. Okay, so here's the here's the historical gesture I want to go straight in in with. Um, this uh, is, where are we here? We are the well. You, you we both you live are, in Exeter. We I'll both live you. in Exeter. This is the front of Exeter Cathedral. And where are you zooming in on that? It's the famous Ah, West Front. Okay, so we're both from Exeter. We both walk past this every day and also chat about history (laughs) on Cathedral Green quite a lot. It's a wonderful place to do it. This is the very famous West Front of Exeter Cathedral, which was built sometime between 1100 and 1400. This is a medieval screen. It's one of the most extraordinary 14th century medieval screens in England. And it is completely covered in statues. They were built at different periods. Uh, check these guys out at the front because they're utterly fabulous. One of them is flanking the West Door itself. He's immediately to one side of it. There he is. Ah, uh, uh, oh, there he is. He's touching his beard. He is. He is clearly a king, and he is clearly pulling a very long beard. He's not the only one to be doing this. There's another one there. Um, mm. Now, uh, this is great. I'm doing the history of hands with Dave. I'm going to use this and try and find out a little bit about it. One of the really interesting things is they still don't know who all of these people are. So often in history, you assume that all of the answers are known. Mm. And you'd Mm. assume 
that someone has worked out who the people on the front of the west front of Exeter Cathedral are. No one knows. And um, these these obviously very important people with crowns, they might be one person, they might be another person. William II is one that suggested. Or Henry I. Now, my money is on Henry I because it's all to do with Charlemagne. And there is a epic poem from 778 called The Song of Roland. Mm. Um, I'm just going to yes. mention a few things from this. He discovers his nephew dead on the battlefield and then he trembles with grief. He falls senseless on the body with anguish. And then others, meanwhile, are falling unconscious on the ground. Then there's a very specific description here and it says that the emperor pulls his white beard and tears his hair with both hands. So that's from the 800s. Because of that... I'm going to suggest that this guy pulling his beard with the crown is Henry I, whose son died in 1120 in a shipwreck, a very famous shipwreck called the White Ship Disaster. And his son was his only male Hmm. heir. Hmm. Um, And then it led to uh, an extraordinary period of civil war between Hmm. Stephen Hmm. and Matilda, Hmm. who was his daughter, and the country wasn't ready to have a woman to be king. And I think it's to do with grief. There is some kind of... uh, a mention of Henry being being the king who never smiled again. Um, and there's a poem which I'll, I'll, I'll talk about later, but that's my theory. I think pulling your beard with your hand is a, is a medieval right. gesture of grief. Right. <laughs> Let me take kingship another way. Okay. And I want to talk also about medieval kings. I want to show you a picture here. And we'll be popping these up on our website. Describe that. Hmm. That is a very ill-looking person um, who has got sores. I can't work out whether that they're supposed to be drawings of what's under the skin or whether it's on top of the skin. I suppose it's on top of the skin, but there are areas around the chin, the chest, the armpit, the elbows, the wrists, just sort of pustular scabs, basically. So what this is, this is a depiction, a drawing of um, scrofula, or the king's evil, which medics think is associated with um, tuberculosis. Mm. And it's where an inflammation of the lymph nodes. And basically what you would have is these huge lesions all around your neck uh, and around your, the sort of top of your chest. And basically they would just become septic mm. and they would sort of occasionally burst and you would have a, you'd have basically a sort of an open sore. And this was incredibly common, you know, before TB uh, was wiped out. And I want to relate this to um, a medieval ceremony uh, related to the king's touch. Hmm. So the monarch's touch. And monarchs would go around, they would have formal ceremonies where they would lay their hands on these open wounds. So they would also give a, a sort of a coin uh, to them. Were they uh, happy to do that? Were they, they not worried they, about getting they infected? Were, well, I mean, they. I think they would sort of, you know, wash the hands before and afterwards. Um, but the idea is that it's a new way of thinking about the power of monarchy. So it's not about thinking about formal power, you know, the kind of the amount of money they had. It is about charisma and it is about superstition and it's about the sort of magical elements that are associated with the monarchy. Okay, so it's talked about in a very famous book called The Royal Touch by a wonderful French historian called Marc Bloch. And there's also been a more recent study done of this by a historian called Stephen Brogan called The Royal Touch in Early Modern England, Politics, Medicine and Sin. And effectively what we see is the way in which this kind of charismatic 
form of royal power, you know, the kind of royal power that appeals to the masses, that is all about show and all about spectacle rather than about, you know, formal, rational, realistic power, actually continues from the medieval period right into sort of pre-enlightenment period. So, for example, Elizabeth I, there's talk that in one day, uh, she laid her hands on a thousand people. Mm. James the Sixth and First criticised it because you know it's seen as something that is very superstitious. The church is often against it, but nevertheless, he still was somebody who practised this. And we see it in its probably height in England after the Restoration, and Charles the Second and James the Second were thought to have done this to a 100,000 people. It's after the sort of the regicide of Charles I, it's about the restoration of monarchy, it's a way of enhancing royal majesty and royal power and that kind of... And physically connecting them with their citizens. Physically connecting them with with their citizens. And it has all sorts of problems, because you can imagine, you know, nowadays, the kind of equivalent, in a way, is sort of royal honours. You know, and it's going to meet the Queen yeah. and, and that. And you think about how much, you know, organisation that actually takes. And it's incredibly intricate, the details and the organisation of actually putting on these ceremonies. Are we just talking about Northern Europe, though? Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, where do we where do we see it? I mean, so in parts of southern Europe, where do we see it? In throughout France, um, in early modern England, pockets of Germany. Mm. Um, that sort of area. So I, suppose, yeah, I, suppose I wonder how it kind of varied around the world. But touch was important, yeah. important everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I want to just um, bring something in. Um, I absolutely love this. Um, have a quick look there. What do we got there? We have a sort of small, what looks like a From, small... It's four, 400 BC. Small <laughs> angelic child. Yep. Um, holding on to a couple Holding of, on to a couple of birds. Yeah. Touching a couple of birds. Um, oh, the, the, and what else do we have? Um, the detail of the fingers is actually really interesting. So this, ah. is, this is a marble um, steel from a sort of kind of a funerary thing. Yeah. Uh, from Greece, from 400 BC. And it's a, it's a stunning depiction of a child cradling two doves, I think, and about to release them. Now, what's wonderful about it is if you noticed her fingernails and she's bitten her fingernails and the artist is so amazingly clever and detailed it's not just all about the cloak it's about highlighting this this picture of of childhood anxiety at the point of releasing her birds i think what i love about this is a it raises the question of the history of fingernails yeah do you know anything about the history of fingernails uh, I, I know. I found very little. Yeah, I found something <laughs> very little. But it's um, it's it's an anxiety trait which applies equally to adults and children. It's mm. it's one of the few things which you can see in both adults and kids. Which I think you're, you're, I, I'm, my mind is already aware of thinking about fingernails and yeah. painted fingernails and nail varnish and gendering and and nails falling off and injuries and, and yeah. different shapes. Yeah. You know, and actually yeah. they changed the, the fashion of those and health and illness and the, the fingernails as a as a sort of index for how well you are. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. you do the fingernail? Okay. Let's yeah. do the fingernail. Yeah. Who was the um, clippings? Fingernail clippings oh, and gesture. And yeah. Do you bite your nail? They're like oh, human shells. Bite, do you bite your nails? I, I used to. I don't know. I bite I'm, my nails I'm, really, all the time. I'm really proud that I don't. Good. Yeah. Thank Good. you. Good. Yeah. Um, I love the human touch in relation to animals. That's why I kind of brought this up. It's to do with pets petting hands and how you can make that connection. You're doing it. So, discussing it between a king yeah. and his people. I have a lovely little dog called Geronimo. And. Um, Lovely dog. He is constantly, you know, he, he likes being patted. He likes having his ears scratched. Much more so than, I think, being spoken to in terms of praise. But I think the language between humans and dogs is crucially important. And I bet it's changed over time. I don't know anything about it. I wonder how humans communicated with animals, whether it was by touch. I mean, this is 400 mm, BC. Mm. These well, are stroke, birds in particular. Stroking, stroking yeah. an animal, I think. Cats, you, you stroke. Yeah. yeah. I've just been listening to the Just So stories with my son. And um, there's a wonderful one about why men hate cats. <laughs> why the dogs allowed to sit by the fire. <laughs> so some people cats stroke, have sharp fingernails. Some people stroke cats, and some people yeah. kick them and make them go away. So um, yeah, that's another aspect of something that we can think about. Can you indulge me? Yes, go gloves. Oh. So is it about I the know, Reformation? James? No, no, no. It's not about. Well, <laughs> yes, actually, actually, the the Reformation will, of course, be linked in here. But I, as you know, uh, I am currently writing a book on gloves, uh, obsessed with gloves, and hands are, of course, inserted into gloves. But what I think is interesting is the times when you do and don't wear gloves and the significance of the bare hand. Okay. You know, removing gloves. When would you remove gloves, which is connected to protocols of politeness? So you remove gloves in the presence of royalty or in church or at court. It's polite and also more intimate to remove gloves when shaking hands or indeed when when kissing So is that related hands, to touching, do you think? Which is related to touching. You, you, yeah. you f- t- Let's shake hands now. That's very good. You know, it's quite a sort of an intimate gesture, whereas to shake hands with a glove is something that's very, very different. There are records you know, of bell ringers who, when they entered the belfry would be fined for failing to remove their hats, spurs, and also their gloves. It was about sort of taking off outdoor things. Um, if we also think about, you know, general rules, subordinates should remove gloves in the presence of superiors. Women were more likely to be allowed to wear gloves in social situations because, you know, we've just sort of shaken hands, and to shake hands with a woman is a, in some ways an intimate gesture, certainly in, in many sort of cultures within the past. This also leads us to the very interesting point about ecclesiastical gloves, so religious gloves. You can think here about how the church and pre-Reformation in particular, where you have all sorts of religious practices that are associated with relics and the elevation of the host and the donning of gloves, keeps the, the sort of the human hand away from the sacred. Wow. Look at those amazing knitted gloves that are in the the V&A, bishop's gloves. And also here, this example of 
early 16th century Spanish gloves. So in in, in I love the fingers Catholic of these these traditions. These bishops gloves. Each of the finger looks like a church spire, doesn't it? They're beautifully beautifully decorated. To go back to the sort of the idea of women and gloves. I've talked already about the intimacy of of the bare hand. It's noticeable that if you look at wedding practices throughout the 15th, 16th, 17th, into the 18th century. Gloves, as, as I'm sure I've said in the last podcast, are associated with weddings, though they were given out as gifts. So everyone was wearing gloves, except the bride. Mm. It's about intimacy. It's also about the eroticism of the hand. Do you think the people who were at that wedding had any idea what was going on? They were like, this is a bit weird. We've all got gloves on and the bride has it. Can someone please course, tell me what the hell they I'm did. doing? They all, they all understood exactly what, they, what the historians <laughs> were, were later on going to interpret and the anthropologists. I love that. People standing around at the back going, what? God, I've got to put these on again. I bet they didn't understand it. Well, I mean, you've got to oh, think, Well, I bet they didn't understand it in the way think, that you understood it. Not necessarily in the way that a, a sort of professor of early modern cultural and material <laughs> history might understand it. But, you know, they are... You've got to understand that people are, you know, are operating within a system where they understand the cultural practices in a particular way. So something is normative to them. So the fact that the bride goes barehanded is a normative tradition for them to deviate from that would be you know would be a sort of social faux pas so they'd know if something was right they'd or wrong but they wouldn't be right able to they wouldn't necessarily know why it was I mean, of course i, some, I mean and i do stuff way... all the time and i haven't got a clue why i'm doing it <laughs> <laughs> but i, I want to I, seriously i want to talk about the, you know this idea of the intimacy of the hand and just read you a little extract from castiglione's the courtier so this is a sort of 16th century manual on how to be a courtier where he talks about women's hands and he says is the same with the hands, which, if they are delicate and beautiful and occasionally left bare when there is need to use them and not in order to display their beauty, they leave a very great desire to see more of them, and especially if covered with gloves again, for whoever covers them seems to have little care or thought whether they be seen or not, and to have them thus beautifully more by nature than by any effort or pain. So there's this idea about covering them up and then showing them as a sort of to show your your sort of delicacy and beauty and fairness. I talked about earlier on about the hand on the Shakespearean stage has wonderful uh, examples of how that's played out in Renaissance drama. Does that I, t- must tell you a lot about the society, so not just the people on the stage. I'm assuming that they are mimicking and using gesture, which was common at the time, but yeah. because it happened on the stage, we know about it. Uh, yeah to the extent that we have the playtexts yeah, exactly, that allow yeah. us to do that and we we're, we're able to sort of read them for that yeah mm-hmm. one final example on this on this before we well, wild gloves um kissing a monarch's hand this a, is one a, a step monarch, up from a, touch a monarch might be gloved so when an ambassador or somebody went to um to court and saw the monarch if the monarch handed a gloved hand it would be to issue an insult and i've got an example um from 17th century poland in polite society a subordinate would kiss the hand of a superior so you'd kiss the the monarch's hand as a sort of as a sign of fealty obeisance deference to them uh the protocols of politeness dictated that the person being kissed should remove their hand and failing to do so was to express displeasure. Mm-hmm. And there's an example of King Ladislav the Fourth, Vasa, who in 1644 held out a gloved hand to one of the burrs of Krakow to kiss, which was basically to issue the man an absolute insult. Wow. Right, I'm done. Gloves, over no. to you. Gloves, over to me. Uh, well, a couple of interesting things, actually. Paleolithic cave painting. Huh. So... 
tens of thousands of years ago. Um, and actually, once we talked about the history of hands, this is the first thing that sprung to mind from my, my days as an archaeologist at university, where we did a fair amount of this. I've slightly obsessed by it. I think it's absolutely amazing. So although these look like pale hands painted on a cave, they're not. They're shadows of hands. So, so yeah. you, you put your hands against the wall and then you blow paint against it and then you remove your hand. We should do the history of shadows. We should do the history of shadows. This is a very good one because although the hand is the only bit that survives, once you put your arm in position in relation to the light coming from the entrance to the cave, your body casts a shadow against the wall, which hmm. which makes this whole business of hands become something much more kind of three-dimensional and active, hmm. um, especially also with there's flickering light involved. Um, one of the really fabulous things about these hands, though, is that how many of them are missing digits? And this has been a complete myth, for uh, well, myth, a mystery for archaeologists for ages. It's just a few examples of them here. Hmm. Um, so you don't just have the normal hand, you have a hand like this, uh, well, it's the shadow of the hand, but that's how you're doing it. So you're having one that looks like you've had the top half of your finger amputated, uh, or, or all of your fingers amputated, or your thumb amputated. The resulting pattern on the wall is not a five-fingered hand. It's, right. it's something else. Um, and, and we're assuming that's not representative of somebody having lost a hand, a finger. Originally, they thought that. Then they were talking about kind of... Um, this, is a, this is sort of... Uh, very early interpretations yeah. of the archaeology. And it was really interesting. They immediately jumped to the conclusion that people were ritualistically amputating their fingers, which for a primitive society is a yeah. really, really bad idea. Yeah. Or that they were lost to frostbite or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. well, um, you can imagine all sorts of ways in which they'd lose it. Anyway, recently written something about this and is completely convinced that the solution is to do with children. So if you hold your hand up against the wall and you drop, say, your second finger down, half of it, and then you, you make the shadow, it looks like it's amputated. And uh. what they've done is they've worked out all of the different variations, and it's all to do with hand shapes and how you do it. So you hide your thumb, you hide your finger, you turn your hand around, you stick your fingers out, and they all give a, a very different shadow on the wall. And it mm. makes it make rather than this becoming a kind of a bewildering thing about spirituality and sort of humans marking things, mm. it becomes just an area for kids to play, which I think is wonderful. And Fantastic. It, and it, um, it makes so much more sense to me. And it's one of those mm. great examples of history when someone actually comes across an explanation, which is both, it's so human, it has to be right. Hmm. Hmm. There we go. That's fantastic, Sam. Um, tell you what I'd like to do. I'd like to take us back to gesture. We talked a little bit about that. We talked a little bit about Donald Trump's oh, yeah. hand, powerful handshake. Um, and what I'd like to think about is some of the other kinds of gestures that um, we can think of for this period. And many of them have um, you know, go back quite a long time. You know, And we can trace these back to the ancient world. The handshake, for example. Um, the thumbs up. The V sign. You must know where the idea of where the where the V sign comes from from your 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 work on it's arches, weapons. isn't it? Oh, it probably isn't arches, but I'm going to say it's something to do with English longbowmen. It, the, the idea was that it was it was an Agincourt. The French captured English archers and then cut off their their two fingers. Uh -huh. Anyone who's pulled a, a proper longbow knows that it takes three fingers rather than two. But the mm. idea was that those English archers who hadn't had their fingers um, cut off saluted uh their enemy so we've got the v sign we've also got the salute mm -hmm. and you can think about the the salute mm. whether it be the sort of you know the salute to hitler or whether it be the the salute yes um, and so many different cultural versions of yeah. it aren't there yeah um and also within the same 
within the same country but in different services yeah which is and a, and a little a little thing that we have at the end of every podcast the the high ah, five there we go yes the high five or the fist bump yeah uh, if any of you have seen the trolls movie try that again the fist bump you grab the fist like that and you go around like this pretending it's ah, 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 change, <laughs> changing gears that's really weird or jelly fingers jelly fingers <laughs> bird oh, no, I don't like that. everyone should go out and watch the new trolls movie <laughs> to see uh, the the politics of gesture and the fist bump it's a boxing thing as well joshua and klitschko they fought last night at wembley they, and, um, I, I, I do know that. And they fist bumped at the end of it. Did they? Mm. It's like a boxer's kiss. Very good. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Also, historically, um, the hand hand gestures have had significant meaning. Um, if you think about when you get married, uh, you join hands. Yeah. Uh, when you are in court, you raise your hand. Mm-hmm. So the, the hand has significant symbolic meaning that is connected to bargaining and also to worship, uh, which I think is really interesting. You all ought to go out and read Irving Goffman uh, on this wonderful uh, sort of theorist. Biting one's thumb as well. Yeah, that's a weird is one, a, isn't it? Is a term of, of sort of utter, utter contempt. Utter disdain and contempt. Yeah. Where's that from? Italy. Spain, I think. Spain, Spain I think. Um, and finally, I'd just like to... It reminded me when I was watching the Olympics, actually, last year, was it the year before, and we were, someone had described the fencing. There was, there was a fencing match, it was a gold medal match, and, it, and he just described it looked like two Italian men having a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> before we go, I just want to talk about one, one tract um, from 1644 uh, by a 17th century physician... Uh, and philosopher uh, called John Bulwer, and it's called Chirologia, or the natural language of the hand. And these, he's a physician, he's interested in deaf people, and this isn't necessarily connected uh, to deaf people, although he does mention uh, the deaf at some point. But what he's trying to do is give a almost a dictionary or a manual uh, for hand gestures. And he writes... Like an early sign language. Like an, a ve- very, very early, very, very early sign language. You can see here, for example, all the different um, marks of the the different signs and symbols, that he, different uses of the hand configurations yeah. that he has that are, in some ways, I mean, it is, it is to communicate, but it's also to communicate in secret, oh. in secret ways. Um, and he writes, The hand speaks all languages and as universal character of reason is generally understood and known by all nations among the formal differences of their tongue. So it's a sort of a lingua franca by sign language. And being the only speech that is natural to man, it may well be called the tongue and the general language of human nature, which without teaching men in all regions of the habitable world do at the first sight most easily understand. You think when you go to a foreign country where you don't even have a hope in hell of understanding the language and what you know, you start using your hand to gesture mm. and measure to point to, you know, do certain actions so that you're understood. So, there we go. There we go. I like the secret side of that. Um, I read something recently about um, a mother who, whenever she holds hands with her son, she squeezes three times, and that means I love you. Ah, or, or the really... Masonic. The, have done a Masonic handshake? No, what do you... I don't... I'm not the Masonic, a Mason. Masonic handshake. You're a Mason. Sort of, That's sort disgusting. Sort of little, um, also, he just tickled what, what, my hand. What, what we haven't done is the, the sort of the urban handshake, the cool urban handshake. I'll teach you a cool urban handshake okay, that okay. I learnt very... So you, you grip like that. Yes. And then you swivel like that. Yep. And then you go like that. And then you fist bump. Oh, very good. 
Isn't that cool? Well, there's more to learn about hands, I think. We've only scratched the surface. We've done secret languages, we've done scrofula, we've done Exeter Cathedral, we've done beards, we've done cavemen, hands, royalty, gloves, and and gestures. Importantly, gloves. So there we go. It was wonderful. Everyone, don't forget, you're the most important member of this podcast. Please get in touch with us. I'd like to see photographs of your hands. I know that sounds a bit weird, but I think that's kind of cool. If you've got any great gloves and some hand gestures, maybe, try and work out what they are. Excellent. That's it for now. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Twitter at the History MC.